Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 623 of the Survival Podcast. It is Monday, March the 14th, 2011, and uh, we are rocking on with uh, the last of a four-part uh, interview blitz series that I set up so that you guys would have shows while I was gone up to Hot Springs setting up the new global headquarters of the Survival Podcast, which is probably going to be about a 400-square-foot office over a garage is what I'm thinking, something like that. It's not going to be anything massive, but it will let us have really high-speed Internet connections. And uh, one thing that's going to do is I'm going to do a lot more video, folks. I don't have a problem. I don't have any problem at all shooting video for you guys. I have a problem with my Internet connection being tied up for six to eight hours uploading an HD video. That's what's killing me right now, and uh, we can get a lot better Internet access uh, by getting some business class service where we're moving to. Uh, even though I get nothing at the bug out location down in town um, where I can come down to upload my shows and things like that, we will be able to get some pretty smoking stuff. Uh, so really cool stuff coming for the YouTube channel, so make sure you subscribe. Hey, one thing on the YouTube channel, I haven't been talking about it all this week while I've been gone. Remember, uh, once we get moved, I've got Dorothy coming in basically as my office's assistant, and uh, she's going to be helping me get a lot more gear to review, and a lot of the gear we're not going to need to keep after we're reviewing it, and we're going to give it away to YouTube subscribers. All the stuff we don't keep, we'll go give it away in a contest to YouTube subscribers. So subscribe to the channel. I'm trying to get to 10,000 subscribers on YouTube. That'll help me get more gear, and then I'll have more gear to give away. So uh, set up a YouTube account if you don't have one already, and subscribe to my channel. All right, let's go ahead and take care of our housekeeping before we get into the main topic of today's show, which is going to be an interview with uh, Jason Akers of the SelfSufficientGardener.com. Awesome guy, uh, MSB supporter with one of his ebooks, and uh, really looking forward to bringing him on. Got him hanging on the line right now, so let's go ahead and knock this housekeeping out. Housekeeping item one, as always, let's take care of our sponsors. They do an awful lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one, Safe Castle Royal. You know, what I love about Safe Castle as, as, a, as an entrepreneur is the care they put into taking care of their customers and as having them as a sponsor is the fact that they've sponsored this show uh, right from the get-go. They were one of the first sponsors I signed. They're still with me, and they're still here taking care of my audience. And the number of complaints I've had in over two years about Safe Castle equals zero. Zero in two years. Um, that's awesome. That's actually unbelievable. Um, I expect any business to stub their toe once in a while. I just expect them to make it right. Um I, I, I'm blown away with the level of service provided by SafeCastle. And they have everything you need from long-term storage food to defensive products to, to uh, you know, emergency power products. You name it, they've got to check out SafeCastle. And while they're there, consider uh, jumping over to their, their, their other site um, where they build some of the best hardened shelters you'll find on the planet. So check out SafeCastle. Remember, they also have an awesome discount membership program. 29 bucks, and you get big discounts on just about everything they sell for the rest of your life. And you get that for free if you become a member of the Member Support Brigade. That's another reason I love them. They've been supporting the Member Support Brigade. They were one of the first people uh, to step up and say, hey, let's do something for the members. 
Uh, Vic Rontala, great guy. Please consider doing business with Safe Castle sometime in the future. Uh, also, another sponsor I really love because, man, they just take care of me, and they're the reason there was a survival podcast in February. I had one of the worst cases of laryngitis I've ever experienced in my life. Kyle Christensen kept me doctored up with some of the uh, the best herbal supplements, especially that, ch- that black cherry bark-based throat spray. That's what enabled me to do the show for two weeks of February. Uh, and if you, if you can think of it, if it's an herb and it's legal, you'll find it at uh, Western Botanicals either as a whole herb for your own preparations or in pre-prepared formulations for you. If you need information, pick up the phone and call them. They will help you. They also have a preferred membership program. 50 bucks a year and you save 25% on all orders. If you use a lot of herbals, that's a great deal. You want to know how you can get it for free? Join the member support brigade and you get it for free. Uh, So those two benefits alone I just gave you with the members brigade, 79 bucks. I'm going to shortcut pitch the members brigade to you today at, in the middle instead of the end of housekeeping consider joining the members brigade because two benefits alone uh pay you back more than the entire cost for one year 50 bucks 20 cents an episode also consider joining our forum i don't talk about the forum probably as much as i should awesome group of people waiting to connect with you and what i literally consider a phd on preparedness waiting for you to go get for free the information there alone is staggering uh, remember if you want to try to find some information there you might want to try using the search function on the forum a lot of stuff there just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on the link that says you guessed it forum all right and uh last but not least real quick reminder um, we do have the five book challenge with Gary Vaynerchuk. You buy five copies of the Thank You Economy. You send him a receipt. You get a private hour session uh, with just you and the other people that did this um, with Go to Meeting or something like that with Gary and I. We're going to set that up after I get back. Um, but this is going to be a very limited thing. It's also going to be um, the case. It's never going to be published anywhere either. So only the people that participate in this. And this is not for everybody. This is for those of you that are professional bloggers trying to build a business, trying to build an online business, an offline business, you name it. I know it's not everybody's cup of tea, but for those in the audience that are interested in it, um, you know, Gary charges thousands of dollars. Uh, to Fortune 500 companies to speak to their people. And for buying five copies of a book, give them four copies away. You can spend an hour asking them whatever you like. And there's something special from me in there as well after the Gary thing uh, to make sure that everybody gets just an outstanding value out of doing this. Full details on last Monday's show. That was show number 618. Uh, there's also a blog post about it I'll link to from today's show notes. Uh, the opportunity there is going to be closing down probably by the end of this week, so take advantage of it while you can. And with that, the housekeeping is wrapped up, so I'm really excited to... Uh, to introduce a guy that I think is just doing a fantastic job with his website. Again, his website is the selfsufficientgardener.com, and he is helping people garden efficiently, responsibly, and sustainably. His name is Jason Akers, and he's got a lot to tell us today about things like plant histories and why he got into doing what he's doing. Jason, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Jack. It's a real honor to be on your show. Well, I'm really ha- glad to have you here, folks. Jason actually donated uh, one of his ebooks on planting trees uh, to the Member Support Brigade, and that's available there. So Jason is not only a listener to the show, he's also a supporter of the show. So uh, I'm really glad to have you on today. And I'd like you to tell folks a little bit about your websites and kind of how you got started doing what you're doing and why you're doing it in the first place. 
Well, um, I guess uh, I started out gardening like uh, you know many people that are in, in the, you know the United States that are kind of uh, maybe uh, uninformed about self sufficiency and you know the the true ways of nature. So I, for the, about the first uh, sixteen years of my life, I've been gardening basically ever since I was you know a kid. For about the first sixteen years of my life, I gardened off and on and uh, just kind of did it in you know ways that uh, you know weren't really healthy for the environment or myself or, or the plants. Uh, just you know. Fertilizer, pesticides, tilling—you know everything bad that you can do. I did in, in a garden. So um, I eventually kind of evolved my methods, and you know, right about that time, organic came about. And uh, I liked organic, but it kind of got corrupted, and I kind of realized that people were—they just replaced the chemical fertilizers with uh, organic fertilizers, or you know, the pesticides with uh, you know something that was more organic. So I kind of wanted to take it to a, an, another level, and uh, uh, you know, things like your show helped inspire me to um, you know uh, be more self-sufficient in other ways and i started looking back at my gardening i'm like hey i'm i'm pretty self-sufficient in gardening you know i'm always uh you know trying to you know keep things inside the the process cycle not uh not ship out things from my garden and don't bring them back in you know as far as the uh, the nutrients and things like that so um i, I decided to start this niche uh site which is basically uh, the, you know self-sufficient gardener talking about uh you know Gardening and how to how to do it in a way that's going to provide food for you and your family uh, going down the road if things you know to 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 quote you if times get tougher even if they don't basically so uh, I hate to use your tagline but that's uh, that's kind of what it's about only in the gardening sense so no man I love when people use my tagline that makes me happy <laughs> that means because when I first came up with that I had one of my business partners look at it and he went that is the worst tagline in the world. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, it's too dad gone long. You know, it'll never fit on a business card. It'll never, you know, it's not, it, it takes too long to say. It sounds too complicated. It sounds redundant. And I'm like, but it's the only thing that actually explains what I'm talking about. So <laughs> I, I'm honored that you use it whenever you, and you use it whenever you want to. I promise you I won't trademark it. Oh, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> Yeah, I get I get that reference. <laughs> so, well, anyway, um, what do you mean by self sufficient gardening, and how does that differ from organic? I mean, do some of the permaculture things come into it, um, or is it just about trying to make the system as closed loop as possible, or, or what have you? No, uh, permaculture is a, a, a good, I guess, cursory description of it. But uh, you know, I'll go to my tagline, which is helping people garden efficiently, responsibly, and sustainably. And sustainably is, is of course probably the biggest one. You know, uh, I, I guess the, the the way I describe it best is, um, you know, you're you're not just trying to do things that are right for the environment, but you're trying to do things that are right for yourself, which is you know one of the permaculture ethos. You know, you want to get a return on your investment and uh, uh, you know uh, you uh, produce a surplus. And uh, it's it's kind of about that. It's kind of about um, yeah, trying to do things for yourself, not not going to the store when you need uh, you know compost. Make it yourself. Um, you know, there's tons of ways to to provide the things your garden needs. Uh, you know, the water you can harvest it and catch rainwater. Um, the soil you can replenish yourself, as I mentioned, with compost, vermicomposting. Um, I love things like soil block makers. I don't have to go to the store and buy um, uh, pots anymore. I can I can use them. You know, I'm always making my own tools and trying to um, build things. You know, I've been building cold frames and, and quail tractors and you name it. I'm, I've I've built it uh, to go in my garden. I, I don't like buying things at the store if you can tell I'm a cheap I'm a cheap guy. So I don't think it's cheap. I think it's smart. I mean, I always say always be always be thrifty, never be cheap. So if you do have to buy something, buy the best you can afford, but don't buy it unless you need it. Uh, I, well, I say something. I say ahead. something similar, which is uh, don't you know? Always ask yourself when you buy something: do I do I need to spend money on this? You know, never, 
never never spend money without thinking about it. So I agree completely there. Oh, you mentioned something cool there uh, that I've not ever done, and I, but I've thought about, and that's quail tractoring. What's up with quail tractoring? Well, uh, the the quail tractor. I, I live in. A, I have two properties. I live in the suburbs here in uh, in uh, northern Kentucky, and I also have a property in western Kentucky, which is uh, definitely more rural. I guess bug out location, if if you will. And uh, my property up here, you know, I've been I've been lobbying the um, the city council to allow chickens. You know, basically, I have, I have a farm right next to my property. I mean, it's there's cows grazing in a pasture, but I can't raise chickens on my property, which is the the most asinine thing I've ever heard of. My I, life. I just have to say it again. I believe we need an intelligence test for politicians. Yeah, I, you know, the, I, I believe that ninety percent of them are too stupid to be in charge of anything. I mean, you live across the street from a cow, and you can't have a chicken. I Okay, go ahead. I just, I'm sorry, I had to say it. No, no, you're exactly right. It's just, you know, some guy drew a line on a map, and that's where the city ended, and, and guess what, you know? So, um, I'd even lobbied them. I'd even, I'd even gotten them to, um, one of the councilmen was, was, um, entertaining the idea. And of course, he goes to the, um, uh, I'm trying to think of the the word the animal welfare people or the you know the um the the animal control people I guess basically, and uh, they tell him no. So all of a sudden he just drops it. He you know we we were on the path. I was telling him how they could make money for the city. I was telling him how you know this would benefit everybody in the city and how you would make our city you know healthier and better. And it was like nope. They said we couldn't do it. So sorry. So so anyway, I I I got mad and I, for uh, you know last year I wanted to raise chickens all year. I've had chickens just about all my life when I've been in the country. And uh, I wanted to have chickens, and I thought, you know, this is this is really bugging me. And I, I told my wife, I said, I'm just going to build, you know, I built a chicken tractor, and so I'm just getting them anyway. You know, forget about them. I'm getting them, and they can find me. They can take me to jail, whatever. I'll go to jail over chickens. I don't care. <laughs> so, you know, she she laughed at me. Of course, she, you know, she knows I'll do it too, just just to be, you know, me. So, um, so I, I got to thinking. I was like, you know. I've, I've raised quail before, and I like quail. You know, they're they're neat little animals. You know, they're a little bit less friendly than chickens, but you know, I can do the same thing in my garden. It's not you know one of these huge fields that I'm going to need a chicken tractor, you know, to to go through and do my you know lay their manure down and pick up the pests. You know, quail will do the same thing only on a smaller scale. So I started building a, a quail tractor, just kind of a miniature chicken tractor. So very uh, cool, and yeah, they're they're know. good eating little buggers too, man. I'll, I'll tell you what, and. I, it, it almost makes me think. I know you've probably heard me say on my show that when you're going to grow stuff in your garden and spaces at a premium, grow things you can't buy, or exactly. that if you can buy it, it's very expensive or limited time when you can get your hands on it. Well, I mean, even if you want to eat organic or you want to buy free range or you want to buy locally, you can find chicken everywhere. Yeah. Finding quail, I mean, you, I, I've spent some pretty long days uh, getting cactus thorns in my feet for a few quail. So oh, uh, yeah. Having them in the backyard may not be a bad idea. I, I've been kicking around the idea of doing pigeons because I'm real familiar with that. My uncle uh, raised pigeons, and it's like a giant dove. And yeah, uh, but quail are actually probably less messy because there's something you're gonna, you know, pigeons you got to keep kind of up and in a coop and things like that. But quail are happy on the ground; they fly when they're scared. Exactly. So it's probably a better bird for the job. I know in the deserts. They do a lot with pigeons because pigeons are actually a desert bird, and they set these these just basically open nesting boxes for the pigeons, and they just move the box to wherever they want pigeon manure. And oh, of course, really? I didn't they're, know they're, that. yeah, they're happy to do it. You know, if you if you go watch on YouTube, remember Jeff Lawton's greeting the desert. Yep. There's a second part to it where he goes back and shows basically what happened when the funding went away and they left, and some of it. Still is there, and some of it kind of, you know, got overrun by goats and whatever. But they have these big, they just like look like open box uh, stands, 
And the pigeons go in there and, you know, they're still using it and they're one of the few birds that can actually live in a, you know, a, a desert environment. They need some greenery and all, but they can live in a, in a desert-like environment. They're like a desert dove, basically. Guess that's why they do good in the city, right? <laughs> exactly. Because they don't need a lot. If they can find food in a place to nest, that they'll sort it out. And they, they have a really long, um, uh, really long flight capability. Um, so they can, if they, if there's water anywhere, Within a few miles of them, even a small amount of water, they can fly out, get that water every day, and come back. Um, but I think your idea with quail—it's something I've never thought of. Um, but you got my mind uh, going now because I'm not real fond of chickens, honestly. They're—I uh, like ducks. I just think uh -huh. ducks have a nicer personality than a chicken, and uh, ducks don't generally reshape your fruit trees, and uh, you know by <laughs> deciding to roost in them when they're only like a year old, and oh, they yeah. don't end up on your porch, um, you know, and, and, and you know like you're kicking them off the porch or whatever. But quail, I could do with some quail, man. I think, and I'm thinking about some some mesquite and some bacon to go with those quail. <laughs> yeah, somebody somebody uh, made the comment. I think I put on my uh, on my website. You know, you're not going to be able to get. But, you know, three or four quail in there. I said, well, I'm going to buy ten, and it's going to end up with three or four. So. <laughs> I, I think that's that's probably a, a good way to look at it. And you could uh, you could actually grow quite a few of those. I mean, I've, I've got five acres I'm moving to, so I could uh, I have a pretty good quail operation there. You, I'm going to go on to a different subject because you got me. You got my head turning now. We were chatting before we got on the air. We were we said we would talk a little bit about plant histories, and I think this is a place you can teach me some things because you were telling me some things I didn't know. So let, let's talk a little bit about some of these annual vegetables that we grow. I think people look at a tomato, for instance, and uh -huh. they think that that's just what it is. It's always been that way. They've, it's always looked that way. There's always been a catalog you could open up with 400 varieties of tomatoes in it, but but that's not the case. I just did a show recently on you know, hybrid seeds and what they really are and how all of these open pollinated seeds we have today started out as hybrids, they went through a process, and eventually they were purified out where they would reproduce naturally. So where do tomatoes come from, and, and how did we end up with all these amazing variety that we have today? Well, I, I love plant history because it's so intertwined with, of course, you know, uh, human history and, uh, you know, just the things you find out by, by, you know, researching tomatoes, for instance, which is just, you know, so, like you said, it seems like so, um, you know, so mundane kind of subject and, you know, something we take for granted. But, um, uh, they were basically found, you know, uh, in the Aztec, uh, civilization when, uh, when, uh, Cortez came over and, you know, started slaughtering, you know, all the Aztecs, you know, that one of the plants he found was tomato. And I made a joke in my in my podcast I did about tomato history. I guess he was too busy, you know, uh, with his sword to actually ask him what they were doing with the tomato. So, you know, he brings this back, brings it back to Spain, and uh, you know that people are growing it over there for a long time, and they just grow it for ornamental ornamental use. They they consider it poisonous. Um, and eventually, you know, it gets around it. <laughs> it's 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 like a comedy of errors because the the naming just didn't help it at all. You know, the, the Spanish get it and the Italians get it. And the, the Italians still fight to this day and claim that they brought the tomato back from the New World in, into their, into their country. You know, there's, there's festivals in Spain and Italy just celebrating the tomato, you know, where they run around and, and, and you know, uh, clobber people with tomatoes. But, uh, um, Cortez brought it back. He found it in, uh, you know, in the Aztec civilization. It originally came from the Andes, uh, the Andes Mountains, uh, you know, around, uh, around Peru and, uh, you know, the South American countries, uh, uh, close around that. And, uh, it was the first ones they 
they assume were yellow. They, they assume there weren't, uh, you know, these red tomatoes we think of today. The, the first ones in Europe were yellow. Um, the reason they think that is because it was called, uh, you know, a yellow love apple and things like that. Uh, when they finally started eating it, they thought it was aphrodisiac. Um, you know, of course, they, like I said, uh, getting to the naming convention was just kind of, uh, kind of a, a hilarious comedy of errors because everything they seemed to name it with the, um, you know, the, uh, the botanical name just seemed to get worse. It just seemed to make it, you know, it didn't help it at all. And, uh, um, sorry, excuse me. <laughs> so, uh, so Turnifert, you know, the French botanist, I, I, I study Turnifert a lot and I study, uh, Linnaeus a lot. And, uh, Turnifert got a hold of it. He's, he's French. And, uh, so he named it, uh, you know, it, rightly it came from Solnaceae, um, family. And, uh, he names it, uh, the genus Lycopersicum. Which means, uh, wolf peach. Lyco, you know, you've heard the term lyco, uh, dogs, wolves, etc., canine. Like the old search engine that failed, lycos. And exactly. it was a dog, okay, yeah? Exactly. Well, <laughs> unfortunately, lycopersicon means wolf peach. And wolf peach in, uh, Roman and Gaelic and German literature and, 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 uh, fable was a, um, a food that was given to wolves. It was, it was poisonous. It was a, an attractive package to put poison to give to wolves. So you've, you've got this, this, plant in Europe that no one's ever seen and they're starting to grow it and it's pretty it's ornamental and you know they start they start getting by and they start classifying it naming it and they name it basically nightshade which you know uh, many varieties of nightshade are deadly poison a uh, wolf peach nightshade wolf peach so would you want to eat that <laughs> no uh, and to be fair if you eat the green part of a tomato it's it's pretty daggone toxic Absolutely. So, so they were too busy killing Aztecs to like go. Hey, dude, we eat this. Yeah, what, what do you do with this thing? You know, they they thought they grew it for you know, ornamental use or hey, something. Hey, correct there. me if I'm wrong. The reason there's so much with tomato sauce and stuff like that in Italy is when they did finally start eating it. The Italians at least believed we well, can eat it, but you better cook it because if you eat it raw, it's gonna kill you. Yes, that that's true. Well, um, one of the things that uh, that came about that that also didn't help with its poison poison um, reputation was uh, you know a lot of a lot of Europe you know the utensilware which we don't think about they used um, pewter and a lot of the pewter at the time had a lead content in it. Well, tomatoes are acidic, so you stick a pewter fork and you know tomatoes, and over time and over time you keep eating the lead out of the oh, pewter. Oh, that, that's great. Yeah, okay. I got yeah, you. so you know they hadn't seen it. You know, of course, if you can, and I know you do, you know that tomatoes are very acidic, which you know is one of the things that lends them to canning without, uh, you know, steam bath. You can you can just uh, use the boiling water bath. Yep. And uh, you know, obviously that that uh, that acid would uh, you know kind of leach out the um, the 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 lead in the pewter. But uh, even it was funny, you know, everywhere it went, even when it came back to the, to the you know the colonies and came back to America, um, they still thought it was poisonous. People would grow it for ornamental use, and that's um, basically about it. And uh, it finally took right around the 1800s. There was a, a guy named uh, Colonel Robert Johnson in New Jersey, and he um, he put this ad out basically in the in the paper, or, you know, post up a notice, whatever they did back then. <laughs> And, uh, you know, he, uh, he told everybody, you know, to come watch him on the courthouse steps. He was going to eat a basket of tomatoes. So, you know, of course he had a huge crowd show up because they wanted to see this guy kill over and die. But yeah, they figured he's going to eat about six and then fall over, grab his stomach and bleed out his ears or something. Yeah, which is kind of morbid that, they, that, you know, so, uh, a crowd shows up, you know, to watch this guy die. <laughs> so, uh. Come on, Paul, we're going to watch a fool eat some tomatoes. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be funny. Watch this. So, uh. Of course, the guy eats the whole basket and he gets nothing but maybe a tummy ache. And uh, after that, basically, they were uh, you kind of took off. You know, every every culture had their little uh, their little thing. Even the uh, 
I can't remember one of the one of the countries in Europe that that didn't take to it even had a surgeon that you know wrote literature constantly claiming it was poisonous. And it's like these people didn't didn't do what you know the Native Americans did and just try a little bit and make sure. But yeah, you know, you're answering something for me that I really is a question that I never asked, and now I'm asking it and getting an answer at the same time. I'm working my way through uh, Thomas Jefferson's The Garden Book. Oh yes, uh, which is an amazing, amazing history, and I'm up to about like real early 1800s, and it just hit me now. There's not a mention yet in there of tomatoes. Um, there will be. <laughs> I'm sure there will be, but at this point there isn't, and that maybe coincides with that. Exactly. Um, because exactly. It, now the man loved peas. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there wasn't that thing that Thomas apparently Thomas Jefferson loved to pee more than anything else in the world. He loved liberty, declarations, and peas. A man it, after my own heart. <laughs> the guy grew peas constantly. It was it's pretty cool. And folks, if you uh, if you if, if you're looking for something unique to add to your library, that book is awesome. And the research, it's just not just his book. There's like tons of like, and you've, I don't know if you have a copy or not, Jason, but it's. No, it, but now I want one. Oh, <laughs> because every species that's in there is like footnoted and they're like, cause they're not sure what it is and they're like, it's probably in the Latin names and where it probably came from and other entries and like, well, it must have been this because there's a bill of sale found at Monticello for this particular variety of wheat. And, uh, it's, it's an amazing book. It's about 40 bucks. Uh, but it, it's also big enough if somebody breaks in your house and you can't get your gun, you beat them to death with it. <laughs> and uh, he's one of my heroes. And and now reading this book, he's he's becoming more of a hero of mine. Yeah, this he he definitely had some insight. But uh, you know, it's funny you mentioned. I knew as soon as you said Thomas Jefferson, I was like, yep. Every single every time I looked up the history of a plant, oh yeah, and Thomas Jefferson grew it at Monticello. It's like what? It's everyone. Every time you look it up on the internet or something, you get to the bottom and Thomas Jefferson grew this plant at Monticello. <laughs> yeah, and I'll tell you what, a lot of that stuff you can still you can go to the Monticello website and you can buy seeds that are direct lineage back to stuff that the Jefferson grew, and it's not a ton of stuff. But it's a pretty good catalog of seeds that, you know, you bring this stuff into your garden, you start growing it, you're actually growing a seed that was originally grown by Jefferson. So I'm going to add some of that to my uh, seed collection this year. Very cool. Very cool. We were also talking about brassias, uh, broccoli, cabbage, kale, stuff like that. And you're telling me basically that all started out, it's hard, you look at a kale, you look at a cauliflower, you look at a cabbage, and you look at a broccoli, and you go, well, they all have a similar smell, but they sure look different. But they all started out as one plant. Yeah, that that's right. Uh, and you know, you and I were talking. It's it's really you know, tomatoes were, were have, you know, tomatoes have always been basically tomatoes. They were they were yellow, and you know, maybe they were smaller, but they've always basically been tomatoes. But brassicas are, are just an example of a plant that took to. Um, various cultivations, and you, you and I have talked about on both our shows about how you can take a uh, a plant and keep growing it, and, and you know, getting the best kind of the best seeds out of it. You know, getting getting taking the plant the best best properties and collecting the seed and saving it and growing it year after year after year and nurturing that quality. Well, uh, definitely the brassicas are are definitely an example of that happening, but it happened across cultures, and every culture that got it turned it into what they wanted. And, uh, it's, I mean, it's really, it was more fascinating just about than tomatoes, except for the, the cool comedy of errors with the, uh, the poisonous thing. But, um, brassicas all came about from, uh, basically wild cabbage, which is, which is, uh, brassica oleraceae. And, uh, you know, Roman and Greek times, they started, you know, messing with it and making, uh, cabbage and, uh, and things like that. But, um, 
obviously all these cultures kept uh, kept messing with it and uh around the 5th century you know the romans uh got you know got it and started started um, breeding it for the biggest leaves the biggest and the uh, the greenest hardy leaves and uh, that's where they got kale and kale's name um acephala uh, which is the um the uh the, the the species name actually means um cabbage with no head so uh you know they they wanted the leaves they didn't want the the head of it so they grew it for the leaves and it became kale so, um, I'm sorry, I, I went backwards a little bit. Kale is actually where cabbage came from. Uh, they, they grew kale into cabbage. Sorry, I, I butchered my, uh, my uh, thing. Well, that's all right. So the kale came first, and then... Kale came first, then they started growing it for the tight-formed heads. And, you know, and this, this becomes kind of a theme. They, they, people like this, uh, you know, this, it kind of blanches itself, which, as you know, with cabbage, um, as it gets tighter and tighter, it uh, kills out the sun, blanches itself, makes it t- tasty and tender and and uh, all that. So um, they started growing up for tighter heads, and it, it eventually got cabbage. And uh, cabbage is uh, capetida, which is cabbage with a head. <laughs> you know, so it's just kind of funny right there. But uh, you know, uh, the Germans got a hold of kale, and they started um, finding the ones that grew the with the fat stems. And uh, you know, eventually the fat stems kept bulging out, bulging out, bulging out. They kept nur- nurturing this plant, and uh, eventually became kohlrabi, which uh, which its variety name is kalorpra, uh, which means stem turnip. So. Obviously, you've got the, you know these several different divergent lines, uh, but uh, eventually it became uh, it became part where they let it go to flower and they eat the flowering heads. And I don't know if you've seen the flowering heads on uh, on cabbage, but they look they don't have a they're not exactly, but they look a little bit like starting to look like cauliflower and broccoli. So right around the 15th century, um, they started they started breeding this plant in the cauliflower, and then about 100 years later, the Italians developed broccoli out of it. So it doesn't stop there, believe it or not. So uh, we've got one other basic, uh, basic uh, member of that family, which is the Brussels sprout. And um, if you know anything about Brussels sprouts, you know where they came from, which is uh, the namesake uh, Brussels, which is uh, from Belgium, of course. So um, by the 18th century, this plant had uh, went through about 1,800 years of breeding and nurturing, and uh, had just changed into basically what anybody wanted it to become. That's, that's pretty. That's pretty cool, man. I. I had no idea. I knew they were all related. I knew they all had some common ancestry, but I had no idea of the path that they took to get there. Now, personally, if the Brussels sprout would have never happened, I would be okay with it. <laughs> I And I like everything else in the family, but Brussels sprouts and me are not friendly with each other. But you, I guess you know, I, and if you're cold in Holland in the winter, you got to eat something, and I guess it's better than nothing, but... And my wife and her family, they're Dutch, and, and they love them. But they had no idea what they really were. All they knew a Brussels sprout was was a little mini cabbage head. So right. one day we're at the farmer's market, and there was the Brussels sprouts on the stalk. They look so they, alien. Yeah, they got this big stalk and all these little things. So I, I held it up. I said, you know what that is, don't you? And she goes, no. I said, those are Brussels sprouts. And she looks at the sprouts and goes, oh. oh. She, they had no, she had no idea what they actually looked like when they grew. And uh, she goes, can you grow those? I said, you can. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not doing it, but you can. I'll grow some cabbage or some broccoli, but, uh, uh, you know, and I love cabbage because you can turn that into sauerkraut, and that's, uh, pork and sauerkraut with some caraway seeds. That's, uh, that's a guilty pleasure of mine. I do that every, uh, New Year's. That's something that comes kind of, um, I don't really know where it comes from. So my family's Ukrainian. Um, but, uh, that's a German thing. 
Yeah, uh, I guess the German and the and the Pennsylvania Dutch thing going on just kind of migrated into my family. But th- we always did that with because Ukrainians play with cabbage a lot too. We make a thing called the halupki, and uh, that's a big cabbage leaf, and you roll up uh, uh, meat and rice in it and cook it in kind of a, a, a very uh, uh, thin tomato sauce. And, oh yes, uh, those are. Uh, those are good, but they uh, they have an effect, especially on the male species, uh, long term. That's uh, to get you thrown out of your house by your wife. I'll, I'll be at that. <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm from the south, so, you know, or mid south at least, so we eat a lot of cooked cabbage. Um, so yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. So, but yeah, Brussels sprouts don't take up any room in my garden because I don't grow them. But uh, but yeah, but people ask, you know, what good is knowing all this history about all these plants and stuff? But I mean, if you think about it, really, and I started realizing this as I started researching. The the more you know about the history of the plants and and the history and the science, uh, leads you down paths where you um you know what they need, you know what pests affect them, you know what weather they like. It, you know, basically, once you have the families figured out, you, you have it all figured out. Well, yeah, because they have a lot of common things that they have need of, and they have a lot of common things that threaten them. Exactly. Um, you know, I don't really have a lot of problems with uh, with the little uh, white butterflies, the cabbage flies, and their uh, little green uh, worms messing with my tomatoes. You might find one on there too. They just don't do a lot of harm, but they they're going to tear up your your cabbage. They're going to tear up your kale. They're going to tear up your broccoli. They're going to tear up your cauliflower, and that's because that's what they like. And right. uh, and I hate those little things, by the way. <laughs> I do too. Every time I see the butterfly run up chasing, come on, squash you. You know what I do to them? I got the, yeah. I get the, if I have the garden hose out, and you got that spray. I just spray them with that, and soak them into the ground, and I'm like, you're compost now, dude. <laughs> yeah, feed my plants instead of eating. Feed it. my plants or feed my my quail. Um, there you go. <laughs> I don't. Do quail eat it much on the insect side? I mean, they're pretty big seed eaters. Um, they, they will eat insects. Um, uh, you're right. They probably eat a little bit more seeds than they, than they eat insects. Um, but but they will obviously. Um, uh, most of those birds from that uh, that type are uh, omnivor- omnivorous. So uh, yeah, because yeah. a chicken, if it moves and it can it can be killed and eaten, they'll, they'll kill it and eat it. If you if you shrunk a human being down to you know an inch tall, a chicken would kill you and eat you so fast, uh, you wouldn't know what to do with yourself. Oh yeah, I used to I used to set up Japanese beetle traps and go into their into the coop and dump them. And yeah. uh, those things would climb up the wire <laughs> trying to get those things. You know, we had when I was a kid, my grandparents had a an old Concord grapevine uh, on this trellis, and I mean the, the the vines on this thing were bigger than my forearms, and I've got forearms like Popeye, and 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 we'd have the and the the, the Japanese beetles would go to that to the exclusion of the roses. They loved grapevines. And oh, all yes. I would do is I would just take a, uh, you know, something to start beating on the trellis and making some noise. And the chickens would literally run and they'd stand underneath the grapevines. <laughs> and then I'd just take it and I'd shake the grapevines. And when you shake anything to the Japanese beetle on its defenses, it pull its little legs and it go into its little shell. And then they would just fall. And then the chickens would just tear them up. So I'd go out there like once a day and I'd feed the chickens the, uh, the Japanese beetles, and uh, the the problem you have with those is there's not very few birds that can eat them because they're so tough. Exactly. Um, chickens, chickens will tear them up. Another bird that would eat them, though, we had these little things. I don't know if you have them in Kentucky. They're called a Jenny Wren. They're a real little bird. They're about the size of a peanut, man. They're tiny. That name sounds familiar, but maybe maybe we call them something else. You might, because that's like my grandfather's name for them. They're some sort of a wren, and they're tiny. And he would build these little birdhouses for them, and they would fly to the grapevine, and they'd grab one. And then they'd go down to the driveway, and they'd take it, and they'd just start beating it on the on the rocks until the wings fell off. And then they'd eat the body, and they'd go get another one. 
And, of course, they could only eat about two and they were full. <laughs> Maybe three when they had, uh, you know, babies, and, and that was about right. it. But nothing else really ate them. But, man, if you got Japanese uh, beetle problems, you get some chickens, and, uh, and it's like candy to those things. Oh yeah, I don't I don't know why they liked them. I could I could throw you know rotten bananas in the middle of the pen and they'd you know they'd come in and they'd peck at them. But you know Japanese beetles, I mean literally they they'd be upside down on top of the chicken water trying to get them. I mean they were they went crazy. Uh, and I, like I chicken crack. You know another thing with chickens, I, I've heard they're not real good at eating slugs. But uh, I don't know if you've heard any of my interviews with Paul Wheaton. He's a big culture guy. He has one a video on his channel where basically this lady has trained her chickens to eat slugs. And what she did is she took the slugs when the chickens were in their little penned-in area and cut them up in little pieces, and she just started throwing little pieces to them. And after a while, the chickens developed an appetite for slugs, and now they eat slugs. And that's pretty. That's pretty neat. And it's funny because she'll take a big old one of the big old banana slugs and she'll pitch it in there. And she's got bantams, so they can't just you know slam it right down. So oh. the one will pick it up and start hauling hauling butt all around and. All the other ones are chasing it, and then one will grab it and run the other way. And eventually, they all kind of gang up on it, tear it apart. They look like a little pride of like chicken lions, you know, and they're like tearing up a gazelle or something. Um, but she said all she and she said now, when she brings new chickens in, she doesn't have to train them to eat because they learn from the other chickens. And uh, she said before she did it, man, they just walk right past the slug. Uh, right. So I guess you can train a chicken. I, I thought they were too stupid, but I guess the they they can learn things. I guess they play tic tac toe too. <laughs> well, literally, I had a, I had a chicken where I walked in the pen and he flew up on my shoulder every single time. Oh. It was like a parrot. He was a bantam too. Bantams for some reason are smarter than the than the big ones. I don't know why. They're friendly they too. They're definitely oh, absolutely friendly little birds. Uh, they don't make much of a meal, but uh, they do lay <laughs> no. nice. You know, their eggs aren't really that much smaller. They're uh, not. They're and, not. And I think they're a good uh, suburban bird as well. Um, we talked about you talked about slugs. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but uh-huh. uh, you know something you I've, I've heard you talk about, and I, I something I read back a little while ago on your know, uh, English garden websites was the you know the toad. And I last few days I've been busy in my garden building a toad castle and, and videotaping that for uh, for my YouTube. But um, I definitely like like toads in the garden because if you think about toads, what other uh, garden predator really prowls around at night. Uh, you get a toad out there, he's taking care of moths, he's taking care of uh, slugs, which, you know, slugs come out a lot at night. Um, that's when they eat my strawberries, at least. <laughs> and if you give them housing, you'll have plenty of them. I have a friend um, named Byron, and he's not into all this gardening and everything, but they decided to put a pond in. So they put one of the little, you know, prefabricated ponds in, and then oh, yeah. his wife got him one of these, like, toad houses. And for some reason, he's just, like, a little kid, like, oh, I got a toad house. <laughs> so he puts it out in his garden, and instead of a gun, there's a toad living in there in, like, a week. So he gets, like, into this. Like, people get weird neuroses or addictions or whatever you want to call it. He becomes <laughs> addicted to toad houses. And he starts buying, like, every toad house he can find at a flea market or online or whatever. He ends up with, like, his whole backyard full of these toad houses in this pond. About two years later, he's tearing the pond out, and he's getting rid of his toad houses because there were so many toads in his yard that at night in the spring, it was like literally, he said the windows were shaking from them croaking out there. Oh, my God. That's and, that's. Funny. I'd be happy with it, man, because you're right. I mean, if you have enough toads in your yard, um, you're not going to have a lot of pest problems. They are uh, they're really kind of one of the high-order predators at that level. And, yes, uh, your dogs won't eat them either. The problem with frogs is your dogs and your cats will eat them. 
Yeah, toads, uh, uh, toads um, ex- exude some stuff from their skin. <laughs> yeah, definitely your dogs won't eat them. If you've ever seen a pup, the first toad he ever sees is the last toad he ever picks up. Looks like rabies. Yeah, he runs over to it. He's like, oh, look at it. And he looks at it. He pounces on it. He picks it up. And he puts it in his mouth. And he throws that back down the ground. He looks at it. And ten years later, you can show that dog a toad. And he looks at you like, nah, man, you pick it up with your mouth. I'm not doing that. Exactly. That's exactly right. So what is your primary um, way that you set up, like, your garden beds? That are you mainly a raised bed guy? Or are you doing square foot stuff? I mean, what are you doing personally? Well, I, I I talk about my show a little bit, and it's a little bit controversial, so <laughs> I'll bring it up here. I don't, I'm not a big fan of raised beds. I'm not, and I'm definitely not a fan of square foot gardening. Um, and the my problem with raised raised beds is is not necessarily that I don't think no one anyone should ever use them. My problem is that I think people have a good plot of soil and they go, well, I need to put a raised bed here, and, you know, fill it up with soil from the store, and I, all the time I'm telling people if you know I got clay soil, I. Put some compost down. It won't be clay soil in, in you know, a, a year or two. Uh, put some mulch down. It, it won't be clay soil in a year or two. I guarantee it. Um, you know, some people have to have them. You know, I, and I have I have one raised bed at the front of my property in in between two sidewalks, and it makes sense there because there's no soil, and I'm I'm trying to use a space that's you know otherwise unusable. It's just going to be full of mulch and have a flower pot in it, and and I can put a raised bed in there. But uh, basically, my garden is uh is just a a, a large patch at the back of my house facing the south side and it's probably um probably about 70 feet by 20 feet and I, I grow things around my yard too i have a little spot near my fence where i'm growing blueberries and uh raspberries and uh and things like that but uh um my garden kind of sits up on top of the my my lots uh kind of goes downhill my my garden sits up on this on the hill on the south side um so it gets good sun exposure and it, it's kind of out of uh I don't say out of view, but it's right next to, um, you know, I can walk out on the deck and look at it and sit out there in the summertime and admire it and look at all the weeds and stuff or, you know, whatever. But it's, it's kind of out of sight uh, of, you know, people uh, coming by. So, you know, they don't necessarily think I'm, I'm gardening, uh, although I do try to spread that word. So, but uh, that's, that's basically my garden. Very cool. And what are your big crops that you like to grow? Um, I'm, I'm a tomato guy, and I know, I know I've heard you say you had trouble with tomatoes down there in Texas. Man, the blight has kicked my ass. I mean, I, <laughs> last year I just finally said, okay, fine. I yanked them all out, I burned them, and I planted tomatillos and, 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 and uh, ground cherries. And both of them went nuts. I mean, like, I had to machete the tomatillos because they actually connected the two beds together. It, it oh. was insane. And I just got to the point where, you know what, I can buy a tomato. And uh, I don't know what I think. What happened is we got a big influx of uh, like some infected tomatoes in the box stores down here, and it's just established itself. And then last year's winter, it just didn't get cold. Yeah. And uh, that, so it, it wintered over really good. It stays in the soil. And I mean, I'm just fix, figuring if whoever wants to come by this house after I leave is going to have to starve it out. <laughs> Put a sign in the garden, no tomatoes. No tomatoes, man. And I mean, I tried everything. I tried, I got the upside down tomato growing thing and I put potting soil in there and they did great for like until they started to fruit and then all of a sudden the blight came back and I'm just like, this place is, is just toast with it right now. And it's, it's just in the air or something. And it was so, it was another wet spring and that sure doesn't help anything. And I don't mean oh. wet like the wet where a garden goes good. This is a good rain. I mean, saturated, swampy, wet and that just doesn't help at all. 
Oh no, absolutely not. No, but I, I like tomatoes. I like uh, you know, I like all the onion family. I'm growing uh, I'm growing leeks this year. I've I've grown onions and garlic in the past, but uh, I've got garlic out in the garden now. I, I like to grow. I'm going to try to grow leeks this year. It's the first year I've tried to, tried leeks. Um, I'm trying something new this year called Roselle, um, Thai red Roselle from uh, Baker Creek, and it's uh, it's actually a hibiscus plant, but it forms these little um, pods around the seed. Um, Next to the flowers called calyxes, and uh, they're supposed to be um, good in tea. You know, I've heard you talk about uh, wild sumac and putting, you know, uh, having like sumac aid. Yep. These things are supposed to be good in tea and jellies and and, uh, and wine, which I know you like to do wine, mm-hmm. and so do I. So um, I'm I'm growing about 15 of them this year, so which may be a little adventurous for my first year growing them, but. Uh, um, you know, tomatoes, I like, I love all the herbs. I love basil. I talk about dill a lot on the, on the show because dill seems to draw in so many insects for me in the garden. Hoverflies love dill from what I can tell. Um, but squash, uh, I tried to grow pumpkins last year and had such trouble with squash vine borers. I, I had, I'm giving it up this year. The I, I most evil creature on planet earth is a squash, a squash vine borer. I can I, kill any pest except them. They are, I, ugh. Absolutely, them. absolutely agree. I had, I had one guy, uh, I put out a whole series of shows about pests and they were, I did four pests and four beneficials and they were one of the four and I had so many comments, I had more comments, uh, I didn't have a lot, but I had more comments about that show than any of the other ones and I had one guy say, uh, I hate these SVBs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I'll tell you the one, the, the one plant that I found that you can grow that like they'll get in there but it seems like it, it heals itself is butternut. I've got, um, I've got that in my repertoire, and I had it last year, and I, I said, no, I want pumpkins. I don't want to grow these squash. Yeah. I want pumpkins. And uh, how stupid was that? <laughs> so. Yeah, I threw, I took, I had a couple extra butternut plants, and I have, like, this grab, pea gravel around my pool, and I just didn't have any room for them. And I said, how the heck would I take a screwdriver and stuck it through the gravel and wallered out a hole and shoved them in the hole and just left them there? They went nuts. They were climbing up the pool. I had to knock them off the pool so they wouldn't grow into the pool. And... uh <laughs> I think it was a combination of butternuts being hardy and that hot gravel. Um, they'd oh, yeah. be real wilty looking by midday, but once that, that sun would get on the other side of the pool, they'd come back up and nice. And I think between the heat and the hardiness of the butternut, and what I'm thinking about trying this year, because real closely related to the Waltham butternut is the, the Pennsylvania longneck pumpkin. And uh-huh. I'm thinking about trying those this year and seeing if I can avoid my vine borers. We'll, we'll see. I mean, I, I don't know, but I hate them. I tried a product from Gardens Alive that you're supposed to inject into the uh, into the stalks once, and it's supposed to be a nematode that it didn't work. I mean, that's all. I don't know if it doesn't work, but it didn't work for me. Well, I've 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 heard that actually that you know I've heard people say I'm going to inject BT or I'm going to inject uh, you know I, I I hadn't heard of the nematodes, but I've heard the the BT um, didn't actually do anything at all because uh, you know that little thing he gets in there he's kind of uh, he's a little bit protected. Uh, your squash will soak it all up, and he hasn't gotten to the good meaty part of the vine yet. So unless you know where he's at. It's kind of tough, but I did everything. I split the vine. I had I took toothpicks and stuck it through trying to skewer him. Um, but the, <laughs> yeah, I, I was I was brutal. I was like, nah, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna get you one way or another, even if I have to pull this whole plant out, which I eventually had to. But um, I've heard things like uh, putting foil around the around the stem. The the problem is once they're you know they get in there and you never know they're there. By the time you it's like, do, it's like a cancer. They've already you start to see those leaves wilt, and by that point they've already eaten half of the inside of the of the vine. Exactly, exactly. 
The only way I've been able to, to, to circumvent them, and they get in the zucchini, they get in the yellow squash, they get in the winter squash. Anything cucurbit. They, I, they love it. But they don't bother my cucumbers, which is crazy. I mean, I don't understand. Or they do, and the cucumbers are able to get through. Well, the only thing I can figure with cucumbers is the the vine isn't big enough for them to really gain like any size. Yeah. yeah. Um, the uh, but what I've been able to do is I start my squash super early, and I get them out early enough that they get a lot of production before they take them. And uh, I've also been able to get away with uh, putting netting over winter squash. And what I'm thinking about doing is building a squash cage. Um, when I, once I get moved, so I'm not doing anything this spring. It's killing me. I did a show on seed starting today, and I'm like, <laughs> I love my audience because I'm telling you guys this, and it's killing me because I'm not because all I can do is right now start seeds and just give them away to the, the neighbors because uh. there's no sense in me planting right now, you know, because I'm in the middle of this move. But I'm thinking about building basically it'll look sort of like a greenhouse, but it's going to be screened in like a screenhouse for squash, and you know I can hand pollinate or whatever. Because it's the only way I can see. Now, I might try growing it this year up there, and maybe I won't. Some areas just don't have as big a problem with it. They don't. But here, those things are just vile. Well, I mean, I'm in the suburbs. I mean, there's you know, there's no one growing squash for probably um, a mile at least that I can tell. It's yeah. like, where do these things come from? But you know, That's how I feel, too. But you know what? My first year, I had no problems. And I think it's like if you build it, they will come. Yeah, uh, it, it's the ecosystem, you know. They're they're going to come in there whether whether you want them there or not. Uh, so you provide the food for them, and, and they'll be there. What are you doing on the lines of uh, perennial stuff? Are you doing anything with you know vines, bushes, trees, shrubs, things like that? Oh yeah, well uh, obviously the 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 ebook that uh, you know that uh, you have in the MSB now, the uh, the planting planting trees, the low cost easy way. That all pretty much came about. Uh, me me working on my bug out property because I I I wanted to um, plant a lot of perennials there and some did well and some didn't. My blueberry bushes um, squirrels dug them up that I planted up there. So I I know you have squirrel squirrel trouble too sometimes. Well, I had squirrel trouble <laughs> and I got this thing called a Beeman pellet gun and uh, I now what I have is I have lots more squirrels but they seem to understand that the peach tree is not for them. <laughs> because what I did is I left them completely alone, and I just sit. On, I sit on the porch, and I think I've, I've natural selected out all the peach loving squirrels, <laughs> and I'd, I'd let them go right up to the peach tree, and they'd get up that tree, and they'd start working on a peach, and I'd headshot them, and I went, okay, that one's going on the grill, and I did that for a whole season, and then last year I had like this huge bumper peach crop. I was giving away peaches. We even had some that rotted. I mean, I just couldn't use them all. I couldn't can them all. It was unbelievable how many we got. But, yeah, we had a squirrel problem there. Um, Arkansas, I don't know that I'll ever have a squirrel problem. If they ever, any squirrel that's a problem there is going to, um, you know, I, I can use firearms there. I don't have to rely on yeah. the ammo there. So, But, yeah, you see you got squirrels dug up your blueberries. Yeah, you know, a funny thought came to me. Well, too, actually, it was one is uh, your, your squirrels might think your peaches are poisonous, by the way. They might. You know, they my might. other problem with those jerks is they dig up all kinds of plants. They don't Let's have say- to. They don't have any interest in them. They're just they're burying their nuts. Looking, looking for nuts or burying nuts or trying to find somebody else's nuts and, they buried. And there's your spinach laid over and there's your sunflowers laid over. And you're like, jerk, that sunflower was for you. Well, that's what irritated me about the blueberries. They dug them up and didn't even put them back in and you know, replant them. And, you know, that they just died. So, <laughs> But, uh, you know, another funny story about squirrels. My, my dad was helping me uh, plant because he lives close to my bug out property. And uh, we were planting pecan trees. And, uh, you know, he looked at me and goes, you know these pecan trees aren't going to make nuts for 10 years. 
And I said, well, good, then my, my son will be eating them, right? you know, if I die before then. And Absolutely. He said, he said, well, the squirrels are going to get them all anyway. I said, well, they'll be eating squirrel then. <laughs> Confed squirrel, that's some good stuff. Exactly. So, but, uh, but no, I, uh, that, one of the things I, I wrote the book about is, you know, people didn't realize how easy it is to get perennials. And, and if you, if you actually want to do natives, um, a lot of the, the states have forestry divisions that you can go buy these trees. I mean, like, like mine, I, I pulled the trigger a little too late this year, but I could have got a hundred hazelnut bushes or trees or whatever you, whatever you, you deem them to be for roughly $35. Wow. So that's, I mean, that's awesome. You, it's a resource. You're paying taxes to, to support it. You know, and they're, they're trying to support it by selling these uh, plants and, uh, persimmons, pecans. I got, I have like 30 pawpaw trees on my property. <laughs> you know, I, I put them in places they don't even grow well just because I had no other place to plant them. So, well, uh, pawpaws are a great. I mean, you, you, there's something you might wait a real long time on, but uh, that's a great crop. I mean, oh it's, yeah, uh, it, they're they're. I think most most Americans, even if you know what one is, you haven't tasted one. No, uh, it, they're almost like kiwi. People can say, "Oh, well, they're a cross between this and this," but no, not really. You know, they they have their own unique flavor. But uh, growing up on the farm, me and my brother knew we were like the only two people in our family that knew about this patch of uh, pawpaw trees back in the woods. We had like uh, 80 acres. You think someone would have found it, but it was a place no one went. And uh, we found that thing, and boy, we protected that secret with our lives. So we were like, "Don't you tell anyone about where the pawpaw trees at?" Because it's like it's like vanilla banana custard, you know, it is. with its some own little cup. Mango, some of them have a mango flavor. Some of them have a pineapple. It's just it's it's you never know what you're going to get with them. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so you've got a bug out location too, then. So you don't just have your 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 residence. You've got kind of a fallback place. Um, are you doing that just to own the land, or do you see the value in having the the prepper mentality with it as well? Oh no, definitely. I definitely have the prepper mentality, and uh, I, I usually call it my vacation property because my wife, um, you know, she doesn't she understands, but she's you know she kind of rolls her eyes at me when when I when I get too into it, you know. Uh, so um, I just call it the vacation property. But it, yeah, it's a bug out property. We've been building a cabin there for um, it's been going on about a year now. We've been building that cabin, and it's uh it's been a pain back in the woods to build a cabin. But um, I, luckily, I've got a lot of uh, family members that know this stuff a little bit better than me, uh, so they've been kind of helping me out with it. And uh, yeah, I, def, I, def, I love that place like you love your place in Arkansas. Every time you talk about it, I'm like, all I think about is my place in Western Kentucky. I'm, oh, I want to go. I want to get back there. <laughs> so, yeah. How do you manage your irrigation issues with you know your your absences? Um. A lot of what I do, I put this in the book too, is, uh, you know, kind of the passive irrigation type, uh, you know, permaculture stuff. Um, I, I try to plant my trees in places where, you know, it's kind of like a, either a low-lying area or someplace where I can kind of control the water flow. Um, if I gotta put a little dam or a little berm in behind the, uh, behind the tree to kind of help, help, uh, help the water stay there, I will. Um, but when I plant them, I, I tend to kind of plant them, you know, with a little, little depression around the root ball and I, I, I tend to, mulch the heck out of them with uh, leaf litter and compost and whatever I can get my hands on. And uh, I, believe it or not, you know, you would think somebody planted trees in, in you know, western Kentucky and, you know, that's kind of a it's kind of a hot climate. It doesn't rain a whole, whole lot. You would think they wouldn't have done very well, but I've, I've probably only lost maybe one or two trees. Very cool. I know that, uh, you know, after meeting Paul Wheaton and uh, learning about Hugel culture, I'm like, why couldn't I have met you five years ago? Um, because I don't get anywhere near the rainfall you do in Kentucky. We really don't here. And, no. uh, 
I mean, I could have been much further along, especially the trees. I've got some trees going up there already, but a lot of it is I've held off because I'm going to do a lot of land sculpting, uh, bring in, uh, you know, a loader and, uh, have them do some things to, uh, to make the irrigation passive. So I've, I've held off because once you plant something, it's hard to bulldoze without taking it out, right? Um, Absolutely. but when I heard about hugel culture and burying this wood, I thought, well, that makes perfect sense. Well, Why the know, hell did I think of that? I listened to him uh, talk about that, and I, you know, I had the same plan, but not necessarily for really the same results. I didn't really know what it would do, but I've, I've been like, uh, I've been cutting, clear cutting some of my, I say clear cutting, that's probably a bad term. I'm um, just taking out some of the, um, the trees that were, um, I don't want to say unneeded, but some of the trees to, to let some light in for, for some new plantings. And I'd kind of been throwing them over in this ditch and I was going to cover it over with, uh, with dirt just to get rid of the wood because I didn't want to burn it or anything like that. And, uh, of course, my dad, he's the one I go to anytime I need uh, pessimism. And he's like, uh, termites are going to come and eat all that. Then they're going to eat your house. And so I was like, well, I'm going to cover it up with dirt. And, uh, you know, of course, not thinking that's going to be a perfect planting area because all that, all that wood keeps that water. But when he said that, I'm like, you, the light went off in my head like, what? Yeah, so. yeah. And, I mean, I think there's a lot of gardeners that have this, this horrific terror of wood. Wood mulch oh, yeah. is evil. Burying wood is evil because it, 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 it takes up nitrogen. And I kind of look at the long term, like you were talking about pecans, and your dad's like, well, they're going to be 10 years. My kids will eat them. You know, the squirrels are going to Well, my kid will eat the squirrels. I mean, <laughs> understanding that, like, when the wood takes the nitrogen up, it doesn't eat it. It, it. it takes it up. And as it rots, it releases it. So we go from a very high nitrogen environment that's quickly released to a low, long-term, long-duration, um, kind of like taking a capsule versus a pill, right? We get yeah, a long you want, you cycle. Time release fertilizer. Well, there you go. And I, I was also thinking, uh, sunfish are pretty stupid. And uh, a cast net, and a, a few pieces of bread, and uh, I, I don't know if this would work or not, but uh, a couple hundred sunnies on top of that wood before you filled it back in, and there might be all the nitrogen necessary for that uh, tree down there. Um, and I've, I don't know. I've had really good results with wood mulches. I've had a lot of gardeners and people watch my videos and they're like, I can't believe you use wood mulch. All the nitrogen's going away. And I'm standing underneath an eight foot tall amaranth plant while they're right. telling me that. And I'm like, do you see the fertility here? And right, yeah. go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say, I, I, I've heard that myth too. And, uh, and, you know, I, I used to believe it when I first heard it, you know, that it was going to suck up all the nitrogen and what have you. And, uh, Really, I mean, I use wood too, uh, occasionally. My only real problem with wood is, uh, and <laughs> I came up with this even before the hugel culture thing, is it's gonna absorb water and maybe keep it, it'll probably keep your soil cool and it's probably a minimal effect. But I mean, if, if, if you want to mulch with wood, it's better than not mulching at all. You know, so I mean, all these people out here that, that I'm, I'm just not gonna mulch if I, if I have to use wood. No, I'd use wood in a heartbeat if I, Absolutely. if I saw it. So. And I mean, it's all, it depends on what you have available and I try to use what we have. So if you have a shredder, and, you know, you prune a tree and you end up with a pile of mulch. What am I going to do? Throw it away? I mean, it's, it doesn't make sense to me. And I, I like to use, you know, straw, um, but I don't have a lot of farms around me to, to, to hand straw over the fence to me. Yeah, so, how, how self-sufficient or, you know, um, um, uh, sustainable is it to try to haul in uh, hay from Kansas for you? I mean, so absolutely. It does, absolutely. you know, makes sense. It makes sense to use what you have on your property or, you know, whatever you're going to, you're going to use. Something that's interesting that I'd read recently is that, um, wood mulch, obviously, uh, you mentioned it before in your show, tends to draw in fungus, you know, fungi, and not necessarily the, the bad kind, but the kind Correct. that 
are going to you know help your soil and break down the the, the wood mulch, and uh, you know compost and things like that tend to bring in uh, bacterial uh, microbes and things like that. And uh, the plants actually like most of the annuals I've heard like about a you know a half and half mix. Some of them are about 33, 66 percent, but they like a good combination where they can draw from either one. And that the plant will actually exude stuff from its root system that will bring that will bring it in from from either place. So if you're not putting both both down to um, give the plant that option, then um, you you could be depriving them and not even know it. Absolutely. I mean, my my mulch. By the time we go into spring, it's got a fungi net built into it. And I'm not talking about a detrimental fungus. And you can say whatever you want about the blight on my tomatoes. That's I don't care where you grow a tomato around here right now. You're going to have that. The rest of my plants do phenomenally well. And I think that fungal activity and all the compost, those two things together. And what I basically do is after a, a season, um, I pull back some of that mulch, but a lot of it gets turned into soil. Now it becomes organic matter in the soil. It's already been decaying for a year. It's already taken plenty of nitrogen up. Now it's in a second cycle. It's releasing. It's breaking down. And, uh, I, you know, all I can say is it's what works for me. And, I mean, I don't know if you heard when Paul was on the other day, but he was talking about how he came across a lady that was using the newspaper lasagna thing, and yes. she was starving a tree. Yes. And he's, like, totally opposed to newspaper mulch now, and I'm kind of up in the air about it. I'm like, well, it's worked for a lot of people, and... This is a danger and a possibility, and I think we need to be more open-minded. You know, I didn't interrupt him, let him say, you know, say his piece. I respect the hell out of his opinion, but I'm not going to throw something away that, that thousands of people do every day, but I am going to also be on the lookout for what he's talking about, because I thought about it, I'm like, well, I found, like, matted newspaper in the woods left that's, you know, eight, no, 1983 on it, and you could read the print like he was saying. Right, yeah. I mean, it's, and I've had that experience where some of it just uh, degrades. You know, the the microbes tear it down, and some of it just you're right stays there forever. And I don't know if it's difference in the paper, or or what. But um, I do I do know one thing. That, you know, those peat pots you get, which I'm so glad I'm doing the soil cubes this year. Those peat pots never break down. I, I literally emptied my compost bin um, a few days ago, and I had peat pots that were still left in there and fully intact. I mean, you could literally see exactly what it was. No, I, I understand because you, you pull up your plants at the end of the season and there's roots growing through it, but they're still on there. Yeah. And uh, so the first time I ever saw that happen, I was uh, that I became a real big fan of a razor knife because I was still <laughs> using them. But people were like, oh, you just put them in the ground. No, you just put them in the ground. And I would cut a slot in them and I would peel them off. I, exactly. I, I cut them all the way off my plants if I if I use them. And, um, I'm, I'm not even using them anymore. But no, I, I'm with you. I'm a big fan of that cube now. Yes, definitely. I've got 80 in my, in my uh, seed starting rack right now. And it absolutely costs nothing once you buy the tool because you need the dirt anyway. People are like, well, you still need the dirt. Well, yeah, you still need the dirt. It's dirt. Exactly. And I've got people, well, if you make them wrong and they fall apart, pick up the mess, put it in a pot, and you're done. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you know, it, it, make another one. Exactly. You know, and it's like as they grow, they become more stable. And exactly. uh, I was skeptical at first, but I also realized that people were using them 2,000 years ago, so that must was, be something to it. When I heard Clayton say that, but uh, but yeah, my wife looks at them and is like, they're going to fall apart. And I'm like, no, they're not going to fall apart. They're still together. Once they get roots in them, you know, yeah. they'll never fall apart. Exactly, exactly. So, um, you know, we're kind of wrapping up here in an hour. You, you got anything else you want to kind of chat about or any final words for the audience here today? 
Um, I, I did want to mention one thing, and I didn't. I don't think I told you about this, but uh, I've got a lot of articles coming out in the coming year, and uh, um, very a lot of various subjects. Um, Backwoods Home has has a few of mine. Uh, Back Home Magazine has a few. Very um, cool. Th- I have to thank you for. Um, Mentioning uh, Dave Canterbury's magazine, having him on. Um, actually, I got an article in there. It's coming out and uh, should be hitting people's mailboxes right now. Um, which uh, actually, I took a little bit of a cue from you uh, with trying to fish with basically no gear at all. You know, you did your video with the flowers. The flower, and- yeah. I went. I tried to go one further. Well, what if you had no fishing line or no fishing rod or reel? Or what, what would you do if you were out in the wild and you had to fish? So uh, very cool. You know, when I did that, I did that video because I had a buddy that kept going, you can't catch a fish with a flower. And I'm like, when I was a little kid in Florida, we did it all the time. He goes, you can't do it. That fish ain't going to eat a flower. <laughs> and as you saw, I mean, they, they like them. I, like I said, I don't know if they think it's a fly. I don't know. But what, what, the way we even came across that, we were little kids, you know, and we'd run out of bait. And you needed, you wanted to keep fishing. You didn't want to go home. And we'd see, like, something get blown in the water, and they, they the little brim would pop at it. And if a flower landed in there, a petal or something, they just suck it right down. Yep. So we're industrious little eight-year-olds, man, and we'd pull the flower buds off, and sure enough, they would eat them. And once you caught a sunfish, you could cut him up, and now you had even more bait. Um, so, yeah, that's why I put that together. I also wanted to talk about your other site. Uh, you yes. have another site on hunting and gathering and growing stuff and eating it, and it's called, you know, you know funny you should say that, but huntgathergroweat.com. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Well, I, I started doing um, the self-sufficient gardener, and I, I, I loved it. And the self-sufficient gardener, as I did it, and I started doing the research for the shows, made me want to write. And I wrote articles, and you know, of course, uh, gardening season would end, and I'd say, "Well, what am I going to do now? I don't. I'm not really inspired to write garden articles." So I would write uh, hunting articles or fishing articles or, or what have you, and uh, I started submitting them, and I started getting them published. I had, my first one was published in uh, uh, earlier last year. I'm, I'm trying to remember. It was uh, summer of last year, and it was about uh, you know fishing for catfish with jug lines, trot lines, things like that. So I started thinking, you know, I'm, I'm talking about gardening and the results. I'm getting articles, but I'm writing articles about fishing and hunting and all this other stuff. Why don't I do a podcast on that? So it, it kind of evolved from there, and I've, it's it's so eclectic. And people people are like, I never even heard of this stuff you're talking about before. Uh, I just had a show where I did something called phenology. Which is, um, you know, the study of uh, you know, correlating events in nature. Um, for instance, one of the big examples I used on the show was in the spring when you hear peeper frogs, you know it's time to plant your peas. Very cool. And all, all the, all the, you know, all the, you know, we called it folk wisdom, and I'm sure you did too when you were growing up. Uh, you know, but Dad, when he planted his crops in, in the, on the farm, you know, he didn't, he didn't go by a calendar. We didn't have the internet. He couldn't pull it up and go, oh, well, it says here the best time to plant crops is, you know, he had to go out there and you know look at the signs and think about, you know, the weather and is it, is the soil wet enough? Is it dry enough to plow? You know, what, what do I need to do? And uh, you know, so I never knew there was a name for it, but uh, it's called phenology. Sure enough. So I've been definitely documenting everything I see in my garden, not just, you know, my plants are growing, but I saw a morning dove yesterday, so I put that down, and I heard a peeper frog, and I put that down. So uh, You know, I'm doing that this year. I got one of those real nice, and I'm, I'm not doing it online because I'm, I'm not going to have my computer when I'm outside. I got a nice leather-bound journal, and I'm kind of taking a cue from what Jefferson did, with, and that's kind of what's inspired me is that garden book. And, you know, things like you're saying, like, you know, how many doves are at the feeder or whatever and observing that, 
And I wanted to kind of share this with you. I think you'll find this really interesting. I'm watching a 15-part DVD series done by uh, uh, Jeff Lawton and Bill Mollison on permaculture right now uh, that was expensive, and the shipping was ridiculous to get it out of uh, uh, Australia. Australia. But, yeah, it was it, to me it was worth it. And um, Mollison was talking about how, you know, how do you know distances and measurements in, in, a, in an electronics-free and a navigation-free world? And he was talking about the Aborigines in Australia, and they had this place, and they were drawing this symbol all over the place, and he didn't know what it was, and the symbol was a map. didn't look like any map he had ever seen, but there were these places where these three stones were placed. It was a place where all of the Aborigines would go to basically make an offering uh, for whatever their spiritual beliefs were. And the way they got there was a song. And you would learn this song and you would sing this song as you walked. And there were certain landmarks on the map. And if you got to a part of the song and you weren't where you were supposed to be, you had the angle wrong. So you went back and started over. And if you did this, it would literally put you within one foot and you'd look down and there's these stones. And that music had the ability for navigation and that the original purpose of music was navigation. And that he was also kind of uh, laughing about how he taught, um, you know, one of the, I guess you call it like a, a sea shanty, you know, where they have like this, uh, uh, my, my mother was a mermaid or something like that was one of the lines <laughs> of the song. And he taught all these, these uh, natives in Bantu Africa in the middle of the desert, this sea shanty in English. And, and to this day, they're all wandering through the desert seeing the sea shanty. And he's like, I just, I just, I just can't imagine the number of relief workers that run across one of these natives walking through the desert see, singing this old sea shanty. But, you know, it's stuff like that that we realize how much we've lost. Oh, yeah. You can navigate somewhere by music or know when to plant by, by when the certain frog peeps. The, the, the connectedness. We've lost the connectedness. Of, of, of everything in, in, in the world and in life. And it's, uh, it's kind of scary if you think about it. But, you know, uh, that's why, you know, people like you and me, uh, if I can, if I can be so bold to compare myself to you, do podcasts and stuff. And we, we're putting this information down. And, you know, it's, it's amazing that we can share this type of stuff with people who are on computers and, you know, maybe have never, never been on a farm before, you know, that, that are getting this information again. So. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I mean, I just had uh, Gary Vaynerchuk on, and I, I asked him, and he said he agreed. I feel so f sorry for people like us, not just the entrepreneurial side, but the, the wanting to share side that were maybe our age in 1950, where there was like three TV networks, and you had to you know get lucky and be good and get lucky to get on. Absolutely. <laughs> just you know, you decided I want to do the self sufficient gardener podcast. You set it up. Domain name, nine bucks, hosting, you know, whatever you're paying for that, and done. And you've got it set up. I decided I wanted to do this survival podcast, and as one of my earlier list, my earliest listeners put it, uh, I became a wingnut driving down the road screaming at a recording. And, you know, people actually listen. And I'm blown away. I'm sure you are as well. When you get emails from people that like say, I learned from your podcast, we're doing that, that it was listening was one thing. When I started getting the emails where people said, this is what I'm doing. I was like, wow. And that's where I like got into this. And I said, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. <laughs> Because I grow companies and I'm like, I hate this place, you know? And I yep. like one person grew a tomato because I said so. And I'm like, oh my God, that actually feels good. 
And I think we are reclaiming a lot of that lost knowledge. And I think it's shows like yours, shows like mine, and all these other, and I, and I'm just watching like people one after the other show up and start just going to hell with it. I'm going to do it. Exactly. And, and, and they're either sharing it with a neighbor or they're sharing it with the world, depending on how they're doing it. And, uh, it's like the most inspiring thing I've ever seen. And it's I, a great time to be alive. I, I absolutely agree. You know, you, you, you said you felt sorry for, you know, I heard, I heard you, I heard you and Gary say that. You felt sorry for people that, you know, had been born that, you know, wanted this stuff but didn't have the access to it. But, you know, <clears throat> we're really lucky, you know, people like you and I and other people now that, uh, you know, five, five, ten years ago, nobody wanted to know how to go farm. No one wanted to know how to grow crops. I mean, they, they wanted to know there were people out there, but there's such an influx of people that are just dying to get this information. How do I go, you know, how do I go start a garden? How do I go plant a tree? How do I, you know, raise chickens? You know, there's people that they're doing this for the first time ever. Um, and, and you know, they're, they're 30 or they're 40 or whatever and they're just jumping right in and, and it's great. It's really, people are, people are doing things and they're, they're learning and they're sharing things that, you know, people, uh, would have never known. Uh, that that I think it's just great. So. And I know you kind of grew up with some of this. Um, I had um, uh, a gal named uh, Tanya. I can't think of her last name. On uh, just recently did an interview with her that will air next week on uh, on aquaponics. And she grew up on kind of a farm homestead. I grew up with grandparents that taught me this. And I think it's really fortunate that kind of our generation had that tie. And some of us at least took an interest in it and did it because now we're the people that are out there kind of rekindling it. And I understand why people, why it's exploding. And it's like a lot of people are like amazed by this explosion. And I look at it and go, it's about time. And uh, yeah. it, it, when, when somebody does it the first time and they feel the power that it gives them, it's only natural they're going to want more. If you, if that, that's why drug dealers, you know, <laughs> drug dealers are successful because when you smoke dope, you know, maybe we shouldn't be doing it, but there is a certain euphoric feeling to it. Well, when you sit down to a table and you eat food you grew and you realize that didn't come from a store. I provided it for myself. And I, as, you know, as a man, we always talk about putting food on the table and you go, I literally put food on my family's literally. table. Literally. Then you're like, wow, I want to do more of this. Hey, you're, you're exactly right. I, I described it to someone as it's absolute control. Uh, absolute control over your life. Uh, you know, no one can take that away from you once you know how to grow food. You, you know, it's uh, no matter what they do, they have to put a bullet in your head to make you stop growing food once you start it and once you know you can do it. But you know, getting back to what you were saying, you put it so perfectly. Is exactly what I was trying to say. But you know, people, I got laughed at in school. I, I was the only person in school that wore cowboy boots. You know, being a farmer was looked down upon. And then, you know now people are like you support your local farmer. So I mean you know it's it's great. It really is. So I've seen that with hunting too. I mean I grew up at Ground Zero for deer hunting, Pennsylvania, a million deer hunters. It's like the the second largest army in the world or something when when deer season happens. <laughs> but even in school I was starting to see it kind of fall away. Like yeah you, know, you know like the kids are like oh you're you're a hunter and like their dads hunted. But they were like, it's cold. I don't want to get up in the morning and go hunting. And now I'm seeing kind of that come back as well. People starting to realize that, you know, that's part of the American tradition. And people asking me, like, well, can you eat a groundhog? And I'm like, well, yeah, if you pressure cook it because they're tough if they're not young. But, yeah, they're not bad to eat. And ask, I've got people asking me, like, you know, can you eat possum? Can you eat raccoon? And I'm like, you can eat anything. Yeah, uh, hell, you uh, might not like it, but, you know, you can try it and you, you probably will. Yeah, hell, half half of my high, half of my high school, middle school prose I wrote was hunting stories. You know, everybody was like, "This guy's weird." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, 
and, and I think there's a ton of that coming back. So I'm really, I'm really glad, and I, you know, I appreciate you being involved in it. And uh, I really love what you're doing, man. And you, know, you said if you can be as bold as to compare yourself to me, you compare yourself to me anytime you want to. When anybody does that, I find it uh, very humbling, honestly. Well, thank you, brother. I appreciate that. Well, I appreciate you being here today, folks. I want you to check out um, Jason's website. Uh, again, self-sufficient gardener and hunt gather hunt gather grow eat. And I will have links to both of those in the show notes. And again, if you're an MSB member, make sure you get the ebook that's uh, in the uh, members area because uh, it's a great book and it's some really great insight. And again, Jason, thanks for being on the show and uh, thanks for all the work you're doing out there, man. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. It, it, like I said, it's been a real honor. It really has. Well, uh, folks, with that, we're going to go ahead and wrap up today. And that's been Jack Spirico today along with uh, Jason Akers. Together, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Yeah.